Section 21 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Monday, February 26, 1906. Susie comes to New York with her mother and father. Aunt Clara visits them at the Everett House. Aunt Clara's ill luck with horses. The omnibus incident in Germany. Aunt Clara now ill at Hoffman House, result of horseback accident thirty years ago. Mr. Clemens takes Susie to see General Grant. Mr. Clemens' account of his talk with General Grant. Mr. Clemens gives his first reading in New York. Also tells about one in Boston. Memorial to Mr. Longfellow, and one in Washington. From Susie's Biography Papa made arrangements to read at Vassar College the 1st of May, and I went with him. We went by way of New York City. Mama went with us to New York and stayed two days to do some shopping. We started Tuesday at half-past two o'clock in the afternoon, and reached New York about quarter-past six. Papa went right up to General Grant's from the station, and Mama and I went to the Everett House. Aunt Clara came to supper with us up in our room. This is the same Aunt Clara who has already been mentioned several times. She had been my wife's playmate and schoolmate from the earliest times, and she was about my wife's age, or two or three years younger. Mentally, morally, spiritually, and in all ways a superior and lovable personality. Persons who think there is no such thing as luck, good or bad, are entitled to their opinion. Clara Spaulding had the average human being's luck in all things, save one, she was subject to ill-luck with horses. It pursued her like a disease. Every now and then a horse threw her. Every now and then carriage horses ran away with her. At intervals omnibus horses ran away with her. Usually there was but one person hurt, and she was selected for that function. In Germany once our little family started from the inn, in Worms I think it was, to go to the station. The vehicle of transportation was a great long omnibus drawn by a battery of four great horses. Every seat in the bus was occupied, and the aggregate of us amounted to a good two dozen persons, possibly one or two more. I said playfully to Clara Spaulding, I think you ought to walk to the station. It isn't right for you to imperil the lives of such a crowd of inoffensive people as this. When we had gone a quarter of a mile and were briskly approaching a stone bridge which had no protecting railings, the battery broke and began to run. Outside we saw the long reins dragging along the ground, and a young peasant racing after them 
and occasionally making a grab for them. Presently he achieved success, and none too soon, for the bus had already entered upon the bridge when he stopped the team. The two dozen lives were saved. Nobody offered to take up a collection, but I suggested to our friend and excursion comrade, American consul at a German city, that we get out and tip that young peasant. The consul said, with an enthusiasm native to his character, Stay right where you are, leave me to attend to that. His fine deed shall not go unrewarded. He jumped out and arranged the matter, and we continued our journey. Afterward I asked him what he gave the peasant, so that I could pay my half. He told me, and I paid it. It is twenty-eight years ago, yet from that day to this, although I have passed through some stringent seasons, I have never seriously felt or regretted that outlay. It was twenty-three cents. Clara Spaulding, now Mrs. John B. Stanchfield, is in New York at present, and I went to the Hoffman House yesterday to see her, but it was as I was expecting. She is too ill to see any but physicians and nurses. This illness has its source in a horseback accident, which fell to her share thirty years ago, and which resulted in broken bones of the foot and ankle. The broken bones were badly set, and she always walked with a limp afterward. Some months ago the foot and ankle began to pain her unendurably, and it was decided that she must come to New York and have the bones rebroken and reset. I saw her in the private hospital about three weeks after that operation, and the verdict was that the operation was successful. This turned out to be a mistake. She came to New York a month or six weeks ago, and another re-breaking and resetting was accomplished. A week ago, when I called, she was able to hobble about the room by help of crutches, and she was very happy in the conviction that now she was going to have no more trouble. But it appears that this dreadful surgery work must be done over once more. But she is not fitted for it. The pain is reducing her strength, and I was told that it has been for the past three days necessary to exclude her from contact with all but physicians and nurses. From Susie's Biography We and Aunt Clara were going to the theater right after supper, and we expected Papa to take us there and to come home as early as he could. But we got through dinner, and he didn't come and didn't come, and Mama got more perplexed and worried. But at last we thought we would have to go without him. So we put on our things and started downstairs, but before we'd gotten half down we met Papa coming up 
with a great bunch of roses in his hand. He explained that the reason he was so late was that his watch stopped and he didn't notice and kept thinking it an hour earlier than it really was. The roses he carried were some Colonel Fred Grant sent to Mama. We went to the theater and enjoyed Adonis, word ineligible, acted very much. We reached home about half-past eleven o'clock and went right to bed. Wednesday morning we got up rather late and had breakfast about half-past nine o'clock. After breakfast Mama went on shopping and Papa and I went to see Papa's agent about some business matters. After Papa had gone through talking to Cousin Charlie Webster, Papa's agent, we went to get a friend of Papa's, Major Pond, to go and see a dog show with us. Then we went to see the dogs with Major Pond, and we had a delightful time seeing so many dogs together. When we got through seeing the dogs, Papa thought he would go and see General Grant, and I went with him. This was April twenty ninth, 1885. Papa went up into General Grant's room, and he took me with him. I felt greatly honored and delighted when Papa took me into General Grant's room and let me see the General and Colonel Grant, for General Grant is a man I shall be glad all my life that I have seen. Papa and General Grant had a long talk together and Papa has written an account of his talk and visit with General Grant for me to put into this biography. Susie has inserted in this place that account of mine as follows. April twenty-ninth, 1885. I called on General Grant and took Susie with me. The General was looking and feeling far better than he had looked or felt for some months. He had ventured to work again on his book that morning, the first time he had done any work for perhaps a month. This morning's work was his first attempt at dictating, and it was a thorough success to his great delight. He had always said that it would be impossible for him to dictate anything but I had said that he was noted for clearness of statement, and as a narrative was simply a statement of consecutive facts, he was consequently peculiarly qualified and equipped for dictation. This turned out to be true, for he had dictated two hours that morning to a shorthand writer, had never hesitated for words, had not repeated himself, and the manuscript, when finished, needed no revision. The two hours' work was an account of Appomattox, and this was such an extremely important feature that his book would necessarily have been severely lame without it. Therefore I had taken a shorthand writer there before to see if I could not get him to write at least a few lines about Appomattox. Note. 
I was his publisher. I was putting his personal memoirs to press at the time. S.L.C. But he was at that time not well enough to undertake it. I was aware that of all the hundred versions of Appomattox not one was really correct. Therefore I was extremely anxious that he should leave behind him the truth. His throat was not distressing him, and his voice was much better and stronger than usual. He was so delighted to have gotten Appomattox accomplished once more in his life, to have gotten the matter off his mind, that he was as talkative as his old self. He received Susie very pleasantly, then fell to talking about certain matters which he hoped to be able to dictate next day, and he said in substance that, among other things, he wanted to settle once for all a question that had been bandied about from mouth to mouth and from newspaper to newspaper. That question was, with whom originated the idea of the march to the sea? Was it Grant's or was it Sherman's idea? Whether I or someone else, being anxious to get the important facts settled, asked him with whom the idea originated, I don't remember. But I remember his answer. I shall always remember his answer. General Grant said, Neither of us originated the idea of Sherman's march to the sea. The enemy did it. He went on to say that the enemy, however, necessarily originated a great many of the plans that the general on the opposite side gets the credit for. At the same time that the enemy is doing that, he is laying open other moves which the opposing general sees and takes advantage of. In this case Sherman had a plan all thought out, of course. He meant to destroy the two remaining railroads in that part of the country, and that would have finished up that region. But General Hood did not play the military part that he was expected to play. On the contrary, General Hood made a dive at Chattanooga. This left the march to the sea open to Sherman, and so, after sending part of his army to defend and hold what he had acquired in the Chattanooga region, he was perfectly free to proceed with the rest of it through Georgia. He saw the opportunity, and he would not have been fit for his place if he had not seized it. He wrote me, the general is speaking, what his plan was, and I sent him word to go ahead. My staff were opposed to the movement. I think the general said they tried to persuade him to stop Sherman. The chief of his staff, the general said, even went so far as to go to Washington without the general's knowledge and get the ear of the authorities and he succeeded in arousing their fears to such an extent that they telegraphed General Grant to stop Sherman. Then General Grant said, 
Out of deference to the government, I telegraphed Sherman and stopped him twenty-four hours, then considering that that was deference enough to the government, I telegraphed him to go ahead again. I have not tried to give the general's language, but only the general idea of what he said. The thing that mainly struck me was his tense remark that the enemy originated the idea of the march to the sea. It struck me because it was so suggestive of the general's epigrammatic fashion, saying a great deal in a single crisp sentence. This is my account, and signed Mark Twain. After Papa and General Grant had had their talk, we went back to the hotel where Mama was, and Papa told Mama all about his interview with General Grant. Mama and I had a nice quiet afternoon together. That pair of devoted comrades were always shutting themselves up together when there was opportunity to have what Susie called a cozy time. From Susie's nursery days to the end of her life, she and her mother were close friends, intimate friends, passionate adorers of each other. Susie's was a beautiful mind, and it made her an interesting comrade. And with the fine mind, she had a heart like her mother's. Susie never had an interest or an occupation which she was not glad to put aside for that something which was in all cases more precious to her, a visit with her mother. Susie died at the right time, the fortunate time of life, the happy age, twenty-four years. At twenty-four such a girl has seen the best of life, life as a happy dream. After that age the risks begin, responsibility comes, and with it the cares, the sorrows, and the inevitable tragedy. For her mother's sake I would have brought her back from the grave if I could, but not for my own. From Susie's biography, Then Papa went to read in public. There were a great many authors that read that Thursday afternoon, beside Papa, I would have liked to have gone and heard Papa read, but Papa said he was going to read in Vassar, just what he was planning to read in New York, so I stayed at home with Mama. I think that that was the first exploitation of a new and devilish invention, the thing called an author's reading. This witch's Sabbath took place in a theater and began at two in the afternoon. There were nine readers on the list, and I believe I was the only one who was qualified by experience to go at the matter in a sane way. I knew by my old acquaintanceship with the multiplication table that nine times ten are ninety, and that consequently the average of time allowed to each of these readers should be restricted to ten minutes. 
there would be an introducer, and he wouldn't understand his business. This disastrous fact could be counted upon as a certainty. The introducer would be ignorant, windy, eloquent, and willing to hear himself talk. With nine introductions to make, added to his own opening speech, well, I could not go on with these harrowing calculations. I foresaw that there was trouble on hand. I had asked for the sixth place in the list. When the curtain went up and I saw that our half-circle of minstrels were all on hand, I made a change in my plan. I judged that in asking for sixth place I had done all that was necessary to establish a fictitious reputation for modesty, and that there could be nothing gained by pushing this reputation to the limit. It had done its work, and it was time now to leave well enough alone, and do better. So I asked to be moved up to third place and my prayer was granted. The performance began at quarter-past two, and I, number three in the list of ten, if we include the introducer, was not called to the bat until quarter-after three. My reading was ten minutes long. When I had selected it originally it was twelve minutes long, and it had taken me a good hour to find ways of reducing it by two minutes without damaging it. I was through in ten minutes. Then I retired to my seat to enjoy the agonies of the audience. I did enjoy them for an hour or two. Then all the cruelty in my nature was exhausted, and my native humanity came to the front again. By half-past five a third of the house was asleep, another third was dying, and the rest were dead. I got out the back way and went home. During several years after that the author's readings continued. Every now and then we assembled in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and scourged the people. It was found impossible to teach the persons who managed these orgies any sense. Also, it was found impossible to teach the readers any sense. Once I went to Boston to help in one of these revels, which had been instigated in the interest of a memorial to Mr. Longfellow. Howells was always a member of these traveling afflictions, and I was never able to teach him to rehearse his proposed reading by the help of a watch and cut it down to a proper length. He couldn't seem to learn it. He was a bright man in all other ways, but whenever he came to select a reading for one of these carousals, his intellect decayed and fell to ruin. 
I arrived at his house in Cambridge the night before the Longfellow memorial occasion, and I probably asked him to show me his selection. At any rate, he showed it to me, and I wish I may never attempt the truth again if it wasn't 7,000 words. I made him set his eye on his watch and keep game while I should read a paragraph of it. This experiment proved that it would take me an hour and ten minutes to read the whole of it, and I said, And mind you, this is not allowing anything for such interruptions as applause, for the reason that after the first twelve minutes there wouldn't be any. He had a time of it to find something short enough, and he kept saying that he never would find a short enough selection that would be good enough, that is to say, he never would be able to find one that would stand exposure before an audience. I said, it's no matter, better that than a long one, because the audience could stand a bad short one, but couldn't stand a good long one. We got it arranged at last. We got him down to fifteen minutes, perhaps, but he and Dr. Holmes and Aldrich and I, the only short readings that day out of the most formidable accumulation of authors that had ever thus far been placed in position before the enemy, a battery of sixteen, I think that that was the occasion when we had sixteen. It was in the afternoon, and the place was packed, and the air would have been very bad, only there wasn't any. I can see that mass of people yet, opening and closing their mouths like fishes, gasping for breath. It was intolerable. That graceful and competent speaker, Professor Norton, opened the game with a very handsome speech, but it was a good twenty minutes long, and a good ten minutes of it, I think, were devoted to the introduction of Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who hadn't any more need of an introduction than the Milky Way. Then Dr. Holmes recited, as only Dr. Holmes could recite, the last leaf, and the house rose as one individual and went mad with worshipping delight. And the house stormed along and stormed along and got another poem out of the doctor as an encore. It stormed again and got a third one, though the storm was not so violent this time as had been the previous outbreaks. By this time Dr. Holmes had himself lost a part of his mind, and he actually went on reciting poem after poem until silence had taken the place of encores, and he had to do the last encore by himself. I had learned, by this time, to stipulate for third place on the program. The performance began at two o'clock. My train for Hartford would leave at four o'clock. I would need fifteen minutes for transit to the station. I needed 
ten minutes for my reading. I did my reading in the ten minutes. I fled at once from the theater and came very near not catching that train. I was told afterward that by the time reader number eight stepped forward and trained his gun on the house, the audience were drifting out of the place in groups, shoals, blocks, and avalanches, and that about that time the siege was raised and the conflict given up, with six or seven readers still to hear from. At the reading in Washington in the spring of 88 there was a crowd of readers. They all came overloaded, as usual. Thomas Nelson Page read forty minutes by the watch, and he was no further down than the middle of the list. We were all due at the White House at half-past nine. The President and Mrs. Cleveland were present, and at half-past ten they had to go away, the President to attend to some official business which had been arranged to be considered after our White House reception, it being supposed by Mr. Cleveland, who was inexperienced in author's readings, that our reception at the White House would be over by half-past eleven, whereas if he had known as much about author's readings as he knew about other kinds of statesmanship, he would have known that we were not likely to get through before time for early breakfast. End of section 21, Monday, February 26, 1906.